This is, as I said in the opening words, the first day of fall. For those of us who are parents or students, we know fall as the season of filling out forms. I have not actually gotten through all the forms that I have to fill out for this year, although I would really appreciate it if you do not remind my aftercare program about that, because I think that maybe they've forgotten and I can just slide through till January. I actually like filling out forms when I have time for it. You know, you can use a ballpoint pen and you have neat little writing. Everything goes in its place. It's clear what you're supposed to put where. It's not very often in life that we have that. And the best part, of course, is the little check boxes, you know, that you just put those nice, neat little X's in. Yes, this is me. There we go. There we go, all the way through the form. But that's because my family, my race, my children's race happens to fit in little tiny check boxes, just the ones that the forms provide for us. As I do more work learning about oppression and racism, heterosexism, I become more and more aware of how deeply those check boxes don't work for many of us don't work for our society. And now I can't stop noticing it. The forms that assume mother and father when there are so many different kinds of families, the little boxes for race when so many of us and our children carry multiple identities and find the choice painful. The forms that say male and female when some of us experience life as not entirely one or the other where gender is more fluid than little boxes would have us believe. So now, whenever I fill out a school form, I have a whole conversation going on in my head about heteronormativity, right? About cisgender privilege and the complexities of race and whether race is even a real thing or maybe it's actually just a social construct created by conquering Europeans to justify their treatment of other human beings. It kind of takes the fun out of filling out forms. This is a platform, I guess, about taking the fun out of things. <laughs> I'm really hoping we don't end up there at the end of this platform, but you never know. So that's what goes through my head when I fill out forms these days. I started thinking about this idea from the other side of the coin, not thinking about check boxes, but about checklists, and actually about checklists of inclusion. Many of you know that West voted on a new constitution this past June, and my favorite part of the constitution came from this one clause which was inserted into the constitution under the uh, heading of inclusivity and diversity. The clause was part of our welcoming congregation certification to become certified as welcoming to LGBTQ um, families and people and individuals. And so here's what the clause says in our new constitution. You can find it online in our governing documents, which I'm sure you peruse regularly. Uh, so, inclusivity and diversity. The society, that's us, Wes, the society strives to foster a climate of purposeful inclusion of all people. 
We value the diversity of racial and cultural identity and background, nationality, sexual and affectional orientation, gender identity and its expression, religious background and belief, marital status, family structure, age, mental and physical health and ability, political perspective, and educational and class status. Yeah. Think we got everybody? We were complimented on this language in particular when we got the welcoming congregation certification. This was from the Unitarian Universalist Association. They said it was among the most comprehensive (laughs) that they had experienced. And I was really pleased about that, although I didn't write it. I can't take credit for it, but I'm really pleased that it's there in our Constitution, this highly comprehensive language. I'm not totally surprised that we kept doing research until we found the right thing. But I know at the same time, it's the kind of language, the kind of checklist that sometimes gets our own eyes rolling. I mean, can't we just say we welcome everybody and leave it at that? Do we really need to have 15 sentences and clauses and commas? There's a real conversation there, I think, there can be, about the best way to show a commitment to inclusion and welcome. The short answer that's been satisfying to me, at least, is that that phrase, all are welcome, has been, has been used um, historically not exactly to mean that. It means all are welcome who look like me, or all are welcome as long as you'll eventually look like me, or something along those lines. And, and, and it's particularly historically not meant all are welcome to marginalized groups. And so naming those marginalized groups and identities, naming the identities around which people have been historically most frequently marginalized, can be a way of offering clarity on what we mean when we say all are welcome here. But it can also feel, I think, like, oh, we have to get everybody on this list. We can't remember. We're sure to leave somebody out and think of it only a month later, and then they'll be offended. Do we really have to be so explicit? So maybe this is a platform about whether or not we really have to. Do we really have to? Because believe me, I feel like that sometimes. For me, the do I really have to is often about language. Do I really have to give up that word? Do I really have to learn a new way of speaking? The kernel of the idea for this particular platform actually started for me sometime last spring when I started the long, ongoing process of giving up the word lame. You know how that word is used regularly. Ugh, that movie was so lame. Don't waste your money. Or, did you see that guy just cut me off in traffic? Lame. Ironically, turns out that my most frequent use of the word lame in conversation is when referring to injustice. Like, racism is so lame. (laughs) So what's wrong with lame? Lame is a a term not used that frequently, but historically used to refer to somebody with mobility challenges. They're lame. They can't walk. And it's one of many ableist, that is, preferential toward those with relatively abled bodies and oppressive or offensive toward those with disabled bodies. 
one of those terms that equates disability with being bad. Think about things like, well, she's just crazy, or I'm such a spaz, or this class is retarded, I can't believe I have to go. You've heard phrases like that, you've used them, I've used them. Ableist language is a growing edge for me, as I have discovered when trying to work on it. I actually first was introduced to the concept that lame was not a great word to use right before going to um, a weekend-long workshop on intercultural competency. Uh, so the whole weekend was training for intercultural competency and learning about language and how we interact with people and how to uh, communicate better across cultures and different identities and marginalized groups. And, um, and so it was prime, uh, a prime time for, for my personal use of the word lame because I, I really think racism is, is lame. It was a challenge that weekend trying to figure it out. And so as usual, I was helped then and then helped now by friends and West members who've pointed out to me ways to think about uh, and writing to help me think about uh, my language and what language means. I recently read Rachel Cohen Rottenberg, who writes on the blog disabilityandrepresentation.com. And she talks about this kind of language, words like lame, as a disability metaphor used frequently in our society. Here's what she writes. The stories that disability metaphors tell are deeply problematic, deeply destructive, and deeply resonant of the kinds of violence and oppression that disabled people have faced over the course of many centuries. They perpetuate negative and disempowering views of disabled people, and these views wind their ways into all of the things that most people feel are, most, are more important. If a culture's language is full of pejorative metaphors about a group of people, that culture is not going to see those people as fully entitled to the same housing, employment, medical care, education, access, and inclusion as people in a more favored group. Words matter. That's how I would sum up that phrase. Words matter. The words that we use make a difference to people on a personal level and also on a bigger socio-political level. They make a difference in the system. But I know that I carry the fear of becoming the word police, the PC police. I am, indeed, the mother who wrote to the preschool director to remind them that costumes based on a person's culture, like dressing up like an Indian, are not cool. Of course, my kids go to a Jewish preschool, so I reminded them about this, not at Halloween, but at Purim. <laughs> but it's still true. I feel the argument, the fear that all of this means that we just can't have any fun anymore, you know? That all of this political correctness is making us a nation of hypersensitive victims. That we're making a big deal out of things that are small. I was thinking about that, thinking about the word, uh, the word gypped. Do you know the origin of that word gypped? It means to be um, cheated, right? You're, you know, oh, it was really gypped. I bought something, and it turned out not to be what I wanted, and totally got gypped. It comes from the word gypsy, which is a pejorative term itself for the Romani people, for travelers. And, uh, and of course, it's tied into the idea that, that gypsies cheat you, that they lie to you. So gypped was one of those words a number of years ago. I remember hearing someone challenge me about the word gypped, and, and I thought, oh, God, you know, now you can't say anything anymore. 
Is it really such a big deal to say that I'm chipped? I wonder then, as I think about that word, whether it would be okay, if gypped might be okay, would it be okay also to say that, you know, you had a business transaction in which you were really Jewed down? Sometimes I think the extent to which something feels like a big deal is directly related to our identification with the group our relationships. And that's the first big learning for me as I think about PCness and language, the word police. It's all about relationship. For me, every time that I have felt inspired to change my language or my behavior to be more inclusive and less oppressive, it's because someone has asked me to. Someone has shared with me how my language makes them feel. And because I care about that person, I can't dismiss them as hypersensitive. I can't say that their feelings don't matter to me. And so I want to learn more about it. I want to educate myself more. I want to change my language. It's about relationship, about listening to and believing the stories that people tell us about how they experience what we say in the world, what I say in the world. And one thing that that means for me is that in order, in order to, to get from PC to, to inclusiveness, I need to be in relationship with people. I need to be in relationship with people who are different than I, who are going to have experiences and feelings about words differently than I do. And I need to be in real relationship with them. Enough relationship that I'll be able to hear their stories. Real, accountable relationships. That means relationships in which we're willing to call each other out and in which we're willing to be called out. More on that later, because the second big learning piece for me is that it's not just about relationships. That there is a political piece, a systemic piece to language. Rachel Cohen-Rottenberg from Disability and Representation, who I quoted before, puts it this way. For me, it's not a question of personal offense, but of political and social impact. If you routinely use disability slurs, you're adding to a narrative that says that disabled people are wrong, broken, dangerous, pitiful, and tragic. That does not serve us. And Leslie Kinzel, a blogger on a variety of different issues, and who's, um, I really love her style. She's fun to read, actually. She writes, the point is not that these, she's talking about racism in particular, the point is not that these casual racisms are offensive to individual people, although, yeah, that's worth considering too. The point is that they contribute to systematic cultural racism as a whole. So when I think about that piece, when I think about the way that an individual word and the use of words, the way it it turns into a narrative and the narrative turns into a system, For me, that relates to the idea of microaggressions. How many people have heard of microaggressions? How many people know what that is? That's that's pretty good. It's a relatively new concept, actually, I think, in some ways, or it's it's new in um, in its more general use. Microaggressions, um, I'm quoting here from Daryl Dwing Sue and David Rivera, who have done a number of academic studies on the concept of microaggressions and looking specifically at racial microaggressions. Here's how they identify it. 
Racial microaggressions are the brief and everyday slights, insults, indignities, and denigrating messages sent to people of color. They're talking there about racism, but microaggressions come in many forms. It's the idea that for many folks with marginalized identities, there's both the experience of obvious oppression, the experience that you can point to and say, that is really racist, or that is really sexist. But then there's this subtler experience in the world, this subtler experience of marginalization. And frequently, that subtler experience is offered, is perpetrated by folks who, who have deeply good intentions, who would never do the thing that we point to and say, wow, that's really racist, who would abhor that thing, but who carry, as all of us do, as I do, prejudices, wow, it just got a lot darker, didn't it? Um, prejudices, um, I cued that, actually. You know, <laughs> Prejudices in our hearts, microaggressions. Actually, that was a great example. I just did one. Okay, perfect. So I just said, right, that I cued it, that it got the sun went away and it got darker as we were talking about microaggressions, which is this painful thing that people experience. Here's the microaggression embedded in what I just did. This is awesome. I did not plan it. I wish I did. Um, the microaggression is... The, the sort of narrative that dark is bad, we're talking about something bad, and so it got darker, and good is light. Then the sun would come out, it would be nice and bright and light and white, right? That's the microaggression embedded right as I'm talking about microaggressions. Oh, nice learning. Okay, so, so these microaggressions, these little experiences that folks have that add up to an exhausting experience in the world. I think that's, that's often how people talk about the experience of microaggressions in their lives, folks with marginalized identities, that the cumulative experience is exhausting. And that cumulative experience connects back to the broader systemic oppression that those identities experience in the culture at large. Now, in some ways, I think, talking about microaggressions, about language, about word choice, gives us a chance to dig into the concept of racism and oppression more deeply. There's a way that our society has become so, um, particularly in progressive society, we're so worried, so fearful about being called racist or sexist or homophobic. We would never do those big, terrible things, right? And so then we have to be not bad. Microaggressions, if we allow it, give us a way to talk about, about racism and sexism and oppression in our society in a way that we can really um, experience and notice. It's not, it's not the end of the world of microaggression, but it's important. And so we can notice it, can call it out. That blogger Leslie Kinzel tries to get at this concept, at the fear we have of being called out when we're trying to do the right thing. For instance, when you're giving a platform about microaggressions and language, and then you do one. She says, given the reaction most folks have to it these days, you'd think some, calling someone something someone did racist is as horrible, if not more so, as actually being racist. We don't stand well to being told we've said or done something offensive. Unfortunately, she goes on, this sort of thinking only serves to perpetuate racism further. 
by making the calling out of racism into something people are afraid to do and equally afraid to be on the receiving end of, we're far less likely to have the necessary conversations about it for things to positively change. So I'm someone who buys into the idea that microaggressions are part of racism, that they're real. I don't want to do them. I don't want to see them around me. I want to use language that's inclusive and not oppressive. And I want others to do the same. And yet, this is where my commitment to anti-oppression work comes head to head with my commitment to everyone being nice and having a nice time and everything just being nice. Like this platform, couldn't this have been just a nice platform? It would have been nicer, don't you think? It, it's, it's sort of the, the syndrome of not wanting to be Debbie Downer. You know from the Saturday Night Live sketch? Everything, everybody's having a nice time and then all of a sudden Debbie Downer says, you know, well, the bees are all vanishing. That would be talking about honey and she would say, the bees are all vanishing. And then it would go, wah, wah. You know that, that sketch? Well, the bees are all vanishing. That's the problem. Everything she says is true. Blogger Leslie Kinzel calls this phenomenon ruining the whole afternoon. <laughs> As in, we were having a perfectly fun time, and then I called one thing lame, and she went and made a federal case out of it and ruined the whole afternoon. I have two responses to that, responses that I tell myself when I'm trying to apparently get myself keyed up to ruin somebody's whole afternoon. <laughs> the first is that I'm not sure why folks in historically marginalized and oppressed groups need to have their afternoons ruined, but I get to not have my afternoon ruined. The Washington Post magazine this weekend um, features a little first-person interview with um, the director of the National Museum of the American Indian, Kevin Gover. And uh, he talks about a lot of things, kind of how he came to this work and his work in tribal law. And then he talks at the very end about the name of the Washington football team. He says, the mascots and the movies contribute to our being caricatures. He's talking about Native Americans. Here in Washington, insult is added to injury literally by the use of that word. It is a racial pejorative term. It's one that I grew up with, and it wasn't said with affection. It was meant as an insult. It was meant to hurt and provoke. On a daily basis, I see that image and hear that word used casually and constantly. You do get a thick skin, and it doesn't ruin my day. But I don't see why I should have to experience that when it can be changed. I liked that, that last, yeah, right? We should change that, really. I liked that last line in particular. Why should I have to experience that when it can be changed? How hard is it for me to choose a different word to encourage others to do the same? And then my second response to that ruining my, the whole afternoon problem is the idea that we might be able to cultivate curiosity instead of defensiveness. That meditation that Mary shared this morning that set us up so perfectly for this work. So often we get stuck in, in a sense of guilt and being wrong, and we just put up these walls. What if instead we were able to be gentle with ourselves? What if instead... When someone called us out or 
asked us to think about our word choice instead of finding that a downer, we found it life-affirming. We found that that experience connects us more deeply to the person in front of us. Because the truth is that being called out means that someone experiences me as safe. Someone thinks that they can say something to me and, and I'll be a safe place to hear that. It means someone thinks that I'll be able to grow, that I'll be able to change, that they want me to understand them and their experience better. For me, that's what moves it beyond, way beyond the concept of being politically correct. I looked up the history of the term politically correct, obviously, on Wikipedia, and um, and I found that it was uh, first originated in the early 20th century to describe community party liners. It was used in, uh, I'm sorry, not community party liners, communist party liners. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, it was used to, um, by communists and socialists to describe people who stuck to the party line, you know, while they were being politically correct. And then it was adopted in the early 1990s by conservatives to rail against inclusion, gender-neutral language, a lot of the changes that were happening, particularly around language in schools and in federal documents and things like that in the 80s and then the 90s. It was used at that time as a kind of excuse not to have to conform to the language that was inclusive. It's funny, though, because I think progressive folks, I know I feel this sometimes, have a real fear of being called PC. You know, you're just so PC, by the right or by ourselves, maybe, of being the PC group. And and I guess that's fair if if PC means um, having more checklists and more checkboxes. If it's all about looking down a list and trying to make sure that we have two of every animal on the ark. So what I want to challenge you to think about today, what I want to invite myself to think about too, is the idea of expanding the political and politically correct just a little bit. That it's not about looking right or getting kudos for your perfect language. It's not political as in politics, but political as in systemic Linking into the political power of justice. You know, when people say, well, I really got political about this issue. I really care about it. It's that kind of political, I think. That's the kind of political that I embrace, the political of storytelling, of narrative, of relationship. I think the problem, maybe, with that phrase, politically correct, isn't political at all, but the word correct. It gives it a sense of finality, like there's a list of approved words. And if we could just get the cheat sheet, then we would know and never make a mistake. And sometimes I know it feels that way. It feels that way to me sometimes anyway. But the real correctness, I think, isn't in the list, but in the asking, in the conversation, in the relationship that allows the conversation It's about caring, caring about how our language affects people, caring that we're a safe enough space for folks to talk about their experience, for all of us to talk about our experiences. In the end, maybe, it's about love. A number of years ago, I, I heard a minister say that 
our role in life, our whole mission, every person's mission, was to expand the circle of people that we loved a little bit wider every day. I don't know why, but that image resonated so deeply for me every day, expanding it just a little bit wider. So if my checklist can be about love, if, the, if it's not boxes that I'm Xing in, but circles that I'm getting bigger, relationships that I'm building, stories that I'm hearing, and stories that I'm telling. That really might be the kind of form that's fun to fill in.